Psalm 19 calls us to the Lord's fellowship through His Word. Listen to the words. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This passage is just described the reward that it comes in, in, in genuinely feasting on God's word. Restoring the soul, wisdom, rejoicing, enlightening the eyes. Um, growing in our walk with God in terms of our um, 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 holiness and the desire for these, um, a great hunger and thirst and desire for God's word. So it's our privilege this morning, brothers and sisters, to come, not to get a message of inspiration, but to fellowship with Jesus Christ. If Christ be lifted up, he'll draw on men to him, and that includes us. So may this morning we come to come to see Jesus Christ more, to understand who he is, And so to be um, drawn closer and closer into our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. And in your bulletin, to turn to the outline that is there. Romans chapter 5 is the text that we are currently on. And um, Romans 5 is is a mini-climax, as I referenced last time. Paul has just been dealing with the the gospel in chapters 1 through through 3, and then chapter 4 shows it's the Old Testament teaching, so this is nothing new. It's what always has been taught in Scripture. And then chapter 5, he talks about the peace that is ours. Then he turns his shift from talking about what Christ has done to who Christ is. And so he wants to establish firmly in in the minds of the Roman believers who Jesus Christ is. And so he wrote um, he, in, in chapter 5, verses 12 through um, the end of the uh, chapter, a description of the Savior of his people. Last time we saw that he's a Mr. Digression. And so last time we saw that 12b through verse 17 is two large digressions. And so I've chosen to preach the digressions first before we deal with the main teaching that he's getting here. Last week we saw the essential nature of Jesus Christ. Without Christ there is no salvation, no matter who you are, where you are, where, what you've done and where you've been. Um, there is no salvation with Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Today we're turning now to talk about the superiority of Christ as our Savior. With your Bibles open... And as this is indeed God's word, let me ask you to stand out of reverence and respect for the Lord's word as we read his word together. Hear now the word of our King. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And now this is the text we'll be looking with. Who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgressions of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. 
And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Thus, Father, reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Indeed, we pray that your spirit would rest heavily upon us. Give us grace as people to hear well, to study this text together. And then, Lord, would you give us a responsive spirit, every one of us here. The Lord, these words would not fall on deaf ears, but that your spirit, O oh God, Holy Spirit, work within us, granting conviction, granting epiphany, granting realizations of who you are and what you've done and what is ours as your um, a beloved. Lord, bless this time as we come to a passage that describes the superiority of Christ as our Savior. May this be our delight and joy, and may this be the food that nourishes us and enlightens us and strengthens us this week, regardless of what comes our way. Lord, we entrust this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you know of or remember the 70s program, The Million Dollar Man? Do you guys remember any? you guys remember that? Some of you are shaking your head yes. Most of you do not. It came out in 1973. I was eight years old, going on nine. It showed for five years. And it was about a man, an astronaut, Steve Austin, who was coming back on a trip in a plane, and his ship was just torn to pieces, rolling down the, the runway as it landed. But they had the technology, and they could rebuild him. Right? And so they built him into a bionic man. He had two bionic legs, a left bionic eye, and a right bionic arm. Now, as an eight-year-old going on nine, I watched a couple shows of this, and I knew what my life purpose was. I mean that. My goal as an eight-year-old was to become a bionic man. And I wanted to always be a policeman, so I thought, this is perfect. He wasn't a policeman. He sort of was a policeman, but he, he went around helping people. And, but he was the bionic man, and, I mean, he could run 70 miles per hour. Think of that as an eight-year-old, right? 70 miles an hour. His eye could see over a mile. He had night vision. And his arm could lift more than a ton, 25, 3,000 pounds. So I'm living this up, brother, and I mean this. I am thinking in my mind, my only problem was to get there, right? I got to have some kind of a horrible injury to merit, right? That was, I'm serious. There's a kind of thing, man, what's, how hard is this going to be? Because I'm going to have to have some kind of a wreck that I'll have to self-induce to get those bionic equipment, right? And then one day I'm watching a program where the bionic man is taking on these thugs. He never used a gun, rarely used a gun. He, his superpower was his strength and stuff. And so he's taking on this, this, these, these workers at this construction site. You've got a picture, hopefully, in your, in your bulletins or maybe behind. And he lifts with his bionic arm a pallet of bricks, which is over 2,400 pounds. And, you know, you guys know if you watch this, you And the whole pile of bricks crushes the bad guys. And I'm like, that is my dream. That is what I want to do with my life. 
And then my brother, not Guy, my oldest brother, Brant, was walking by and he watched me. He didn't see what I was doing, but I was in fantasy world. And he goes, how stupid. You'd need a bionic shoulder, a bionic spine, bionic hips. You couldn't lift that with a bionic arm. That is so dumb. You'd need a bionic body. You'd need to be a computer body. And I realized that would never happen. So this, my vision of being a superior man, you know, that running faster, harder, stronger, superior, was completely dashed. I concluded at that point, I'll never be a superior man. And I'm not. But you know what? My idea that there could never be a superior man was wrong. Because Paul in this text describes one such man. He is a superior man. Now, he's not superior because he's bionic. He's superior because he's God. And in his divinity and deity and in his humiliation, he came down and did something that Adam could not do. As we saw last week, Adam, the first man ever made, was a federal head, which means he was your representative. So just like in sports, um, if your captain says what he says, the whole team is affected by it. Just like in life, if you've got parents who don't pay their bills, the entire family gets uh, kicked out, you are, you are living in light of those that represent you. Well, Adam was, was, was made by God to represent the entire human race. If he obeyed God, the entire human race would live forever with the, uh, the Lord. If he disobeyed God, the entire human race would, would, would stand as being guilty before they were born. And we know from last week, therefore people are, are, are condemned today, not because they violate a commandment. If only it was that simple. They are uh, condemned today because they were born having Adam as their representative and Adam failed. So Paul comes and tells God's people that Jesus is a second Adam, a second federal head. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he makes it incredibly clear. So also it was written, the first man, Adam, um, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. First Adam, second Adam. First Adam, last, last Adam. Jesus was the second Adam. And what is meant by that, he's a second federal head. But if you didn't realize that, you might think, oh, he's just a second Adam uh, who, 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 who does things on behalf of God's people, I guess a, a federal head. And if he's just a second Adam, then he's going to be sinful, weak, just like Adam. And so Paul here wants to uh, uh, specify, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ is not, he is a second Adam, but he's not Adam. He's superior to Adam. And he demonstrates that in this second digression, verses um, 15, 16, and 17, by looking at what, by doing a comparison contrast between what they secured individually, what they provided individually, and what they impart individually. So let's look at each one of these points that Paul makes, and we'll see, hopefully, leaving here, I hope you'll leave here realizing, brothers and sisters, you have more than a superman or a superhero as your God or as your Savior. You've got the God-man, Jesus Christ. Incredible. And uh, notice with me the comparison is to what they secured. We begin with Adam, verse 15a. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Okay, he's comparing and contrasting. Adam in Christ. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died. The significant thing about Adam was one trespass resulted in the death 
of the world. Okay, so the emphasis here is one trespass caused the entire world to die. Now, God made this man perfectly, put him in a perfect setting with the call to co-reign with him, basically to tend the garden. Had he done that, this world would have become more of a paradise than it was when God made it. It would have just beamed forth life, right? But what did Adam do? He, in fact, as, was, as I'll reference last time, i reference again, he wasn't called to do great things. He was just called not to do something. And he failed at that. And the result is death came to this world. Now, we can hear this as if it's, you know, a, a comic book or some fantasy thing. Brothers and sisters, this past week I had the time to look at how many people died by Hitler's hand. Now, if you don't count the war, just Hitler's atrocities in Germany, it's not 6.4, etc. Jews, 6.4 million Jews. It's over 12 million people. So half of the people who died in Auschwitz and Birkenwald, all those different places, Ravensbrück, they all died. Those people, half of them were Jews. The other half were gypsies, um, mentally impaired, um, people who they didn't like. 12 million people. Now, we think about Hitler and we think that guy was a monster. Well, guess what was going around at the same time? Another monster named Lenin. I'm not Lenin. Stalin. You know how many people Stalin killed? 20 million. 20 million people. The same era that Hitler's killing 12, he's killing 20. Now, if you think about that, the world's population in World War II was around 2.5 billion. They killed 12 million and 20 million, respectively. That is one um, one eight thousandth of the population. St- Stalin killed one eight thousandth of the population. Hitler killed less. But Stalin killed one eight thousand. You know how many people Adam killed? All of them. Let that weigh upon you. There are 2.5 million, a billion people living in World War II. They're all dead. There's not what? How many days? Six, I don't know. I forget. Okay? You add all those people up. Hitler was bad. Stalin was worse. Adam. That guy's, that guy's the, the worst. He had to do one thing. He, he, how he, he had not to do one thing. And yet he did it and he damned. He killed the entire human race. That's are represented. Now, we saw last week, you're going to be represented by one of two people. You can only be represented by one of two people. You may think today, man, I stand before God on my own two feet, or I live life I'm on my own. I'm my own man or my own woman. When in reality, you are represented, whether you like it or not, by Adam or Christ. And if you're represented by Adam, you are represented by the greatest mass killer in the history of mankind. That's your representative. And that's what Paul's saying. One transgression, the momentous impact upon this world. And that is the many died. In contrast, would you notice the work that Christ brought about? And you'd think if if Adam was death, then Christ would be life. But that's not what Paul says here, which is beautiful. Instead, would you notice what he says? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For at the transgression of the one, many died. So one transgression, many died. Notice what we read. Much more 
In comparison, this uh, comparison introduces the, this, this far greater, much greater, um, in, in, in every other way, far superior work of Christ. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace, literally grace gift, the grace gift, so much more did the grace of God and the grace gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Incredible. <laughs> this passage, the key word, do you see it? It's used twice. It's grace. It's used of God, the, the grace of God, and it's used of Christ, the, the grace gift of the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the personification of grace. What is the, so the key to what Christ provides here is grace. What is grace? Well, as you know, as generally speaking, is unmerited favor. Okay? So if mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's unmerited giving. Okay? I, I give you something that you don't deserve. That's grace. But now we tend to view it in that way, but in the Bible, the Bible uses it one of five ways. That's one way. The second way is, and you got the, the sheet in front of you or the, the slide, Christ himself is the personification of that grace, as you just said. Then thirdly, the teaching of Christ is described as grace. So if you want to quantify grace, it's the word of God. This is grace. Okay? Fourthly, or fifthly, or fourthly, it's a pusto, which in the Greek was a, a leverage point outside of the world you're trying to impact. The only way you can move the world is to have a, a, a leverage point, pusto, outside of the universe or, or world, um, um, earth, globe, where you can then move the world, right? That's a pusto. That's a, that's a leverage point. Well, grace is that leverage point in our life that gets us outside of the world in which we live and enables us to move the world in which we, we live. Our world, our world of sin, our world of sorrow, our world of sadness. Grace is that pusto. Then lastly, grace is divine aid. 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, and this grace toward me did not prove vain. So it's also divine aid. So we can talk about God helping you, that's grace. Now of the five, which is being emphasized here? Well, look at the text again. But the free gift, that's a merited. What's the free gift, brothers and sisters, in verse 15? Forgiveness. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ and comparing it to the death that Adam gave. Adam gave mass death. Okay? Christ came and in the face of this mass death gave forgiveness to every one of those who trust him. Incredible. Okay? He gave forgiveness. It's used in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 uh, that way. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's the grace being spoken about here. That's the grace operative through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brought forgiveness. Colossians chapter 1 describes it in this way. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, notice the unmerited favor. This is what you were. You weren't doing anything that makes God want to save you. There's nothing in you that would make anyone want to save you. While you were formerly alienated, hostile a mile, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in the fleshly body, in his fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before him, Christ, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. You understand what, what the forgiveness means? It means right now, 
at all times, even when you're sinning, even when you're sinning, in Christ you are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That is the Savior that we have. Okay, notice the contrast between what they secure. One secured death, the other one secured full, unconditional forgiveness. Now he builds, each one of these he builds. So with that in your mind, you, you, okay, our Savior forgives us. He secures forgiveness. Praise God. Unconditional, full, unconditional. Wow. Notice the second contrast. And it revolves around what they provide, each what they uh, provided. Notice the first one. Adam, what he uh, uh, provided is found in 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Now talking about this one who sinned, Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. All right, so this passage says, all right, so what did Adam provide? He secured death. What then did he provide to all the people who he killed? Well, he provided two things here, judgment and condemnation. Let's define both of those. The first word judgment is krima, and I want you to see it because the next word's going to use this same word. Krima, or, 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 or the verbal is krino. You may know that, but krima is the word for judgment, and it refers to a judicial act. So we're in a law court. The judge, after all the stuff's been heard, the judge comes out and says, guilty. Okay, that is the judgment. Okay, so what he brought about was a declaration on the part of God that the entire human race, yet to be born, but every one of them would be guilty of violating the law of God. Did you realize that when you were conceived in the womb, you were conceived as guilty? Now think about that. That's, think about, forget about Christ, forget about all. Just think about, let that rest upon you. Let, so that you'll appreciate what Christ has done. You were born guilty. And then on top of it, he skips the second phase of a trial, which would be sentencing. Okay, he skips that and goes lastly to condemnation. But first on the judgment, let me give an example of, of that. Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on that last day, Lord, Lord, do you not prophesy in your name in that day and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, this is it, I never knew you. That's judgment. Okay, depart from me, you who practice law. I never knew you. Guilty. Depart off from me. That's judgment. And as much as it's pointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. That's what we're talking about. The second one was condemnation. Now, condemnation in the Greek is, and you can see it, kata krima. Okay, so it takes krima and it adds a little prefix to it, which in the Greek intensifies the word. It makes it on steroids. So it's one thing to be judged, but to then receive that same word on steroids is condemnation. It refers to the carrying out of the sentence, which is not referenced here. The sentence is death, and this is the carrying out of that death. <clears throat> okay, and as in Matthew chapter 20, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, where we read these words on the last judgment. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's condemnation. Okay, so judgment is guilty, and it's a, a legal thing. 
It doesn't change you on the inside. You may not have been felt. You may not feel guilty. Think of going before a trial. You didn't do it. You were falsely accused, tried, and the judge says guilty. And you're one of those innocent people in the innocent uh, project that they're trying to get out of prison because you didn't do it. Okay? Nevertheless, according to law, you're in prison. Why? Because you're guilty according to the law. You don't feel guilty. You didn't do it. But you still, according to law, are guilty and therefore in prison. Okay, so I want you to see it's a legal declaration. Condemnation is the execution of that legal declaration and sentencing. And that condemnation results in hell. So what did Adam give us? Well, he secured death. And then, as if he's your representative, he is also providing you the glorious anticipation and future of hell. So we have two representatives, Adam and then Christ. Let's look at what Christ does. And you'll see he's superior. He is a second Adam, but boy, how superior. Unlike death, he gives forgiveness. Building on that uh, forgiveness, unlike Adam who condemned to hell, what does Jesus Christ do? Notice with me verse 16b. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. This verse is written to shock us. What first came into the world, um, when, I'm sorry, when Christ came into the world, brothers and sisters, he wasn't given the relatively easy task of not doing one thing. Okay? So when Christ came to the world, he wasn't facing the easy statement of, don't do that. That's what Adam had. When Christ came to the world, he was, be, he was confronted by the, by the sum total of the transgressions of every man, woman, and child who would ever be, exist. Think about that. When Christ came to this world, I mean, how would you feel if you were the only one sent as a uh, um, first responder to, well, the shooting yesterday? Or a hurricane? Or a, a, a yeah. Uh, you, what would you do? You'd be so overwhelmed. I've got, you know, 10 people dying or dead. What am I going to do? You and I would be overwhelmed. We would probably be so overwhelmed, we would do nothing. We would sit there in shock. Jesus Christ came to this world, and he, before him, was the sum total of the sin of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived. This is, so Adam came to the world with just one thing he's not supposed to do, and he blew it. Jesus came to the world and unlike Adam, who once he sinned and he knew what the result was, he fled. Okay? What did Jesus do? Isaiah. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He took them all on. He came to the world and seeing it all, he wasn't overwhelmed. He took it on. Amazing. He took it all. What was the result of taking it on? Well, he says it here. From the one many trans resulting in justification. Let's talk about this word. Dikaoma is the word used here. Dikaiusune is the typical word in the Greek, but this is the word dikaoma. It's the word justification. And don't let that big word um, um, you know, cause blurriness in your brain. Very simple word. It's a legal word. So notice this second digress or this uh, second point in this uh, digression revolves around legal, legalese. So just as judgment is a legal term. So is justification. 
Justification, by definition, is a forensic or legal term which was used when a defendant was declared by a judge that he was not guilty, that he was righteous, innocent of the charge in question. Mark that. That's huge. Just like the judgment of is, would be guilty, okay? This, if you get the, the, the declaration of not guilty, that's justification, okay? It's to stand before a judge and in the context of the Bible, guilty of the, of the accusations. But regardless of the guilt, it's to be declared by the judge not guilty. So, last, what, a couple years ago, we, you, the world was, was, or the U.S. was at least um, captivated by the George Floyd case. Derek uh, Chauvin, if I'm saying his name right, the policeman, he was, he was uh, arrested and tried for the death of George Floyd. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have any of the facts. I have, what I've, I have what I've read. And may I make a simple appeal to you? If you have a judgment on that case, you're judgmental. You, you are being judgmental. Unless you know what happened, for you to say that policeman's innocent or that man was not, brothers, it's judgmentalism. The best we can say is, I don't know. I, God knows. God knows. And the people who got the evidence, I don't know, right? But God knows. Okay, but let's just say that policeman was guilty. I don't know if he was or not. I'm not in the position. I'm not going to be a judge here. Okay, but let's just say he was. If that, if that judge said not guilty, even though he was guilty, before the law, what would he be? Say it. Not guilty. He'd be set free. Okay, that's the word. And so I want you to see there's two characteristics to it. The first one is it is objective versus subjective. A subjective declaration would change you from the inside. Okay, so in the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine of justification talks about not imputed righteousness, but infused. It talks about God, the moment he justifies you, he, he places righteousness inside of your soul. And it grows and blossoms, as if you will, like a virus. Okay, that is not what this word is. This is the legal, judicial term in the Bible. And you cannot possibly, conceivably, if you know Greek in any way, lexical, lexical Greek, if you know it, there's no way you can ever get infusion. It's always a declaration. Okay, it's always an imputation. It's always a legal, guilty, not guilty. In this case, not guilty. Okay, so first it's objective. It is not. So the Bible uses it in that way. Deuteronomy 25 speaks of a judge who justifies someone. Oh, so that judge had the power to change them inside? No. He just said they're not guilty. Or Job 32 speaks of Job justifying himself before God. What does that mean? If you take the idea of infusion, if you take the idea of it's a seed that grow, you know, he somehow implanted in himself righteousness, which then blossomed, and so he was right before God? No. It just seems to me, it simply means he was defending himself before God. No, I'm right. I'm right, God. In, in a context of a legal setting, I am right. How dare you do what you've done? That's, that's what Job did. And then lastly, if, there, if, if that isn't convincing, Luke 7, 29, we read of people justifying God. Now, that's laughable if you think that you can do anything to change God's person. To, to justify God is simply to defend. It's what is known in, in uh, theology as a theodicy. I'm defending God. 
I'm justifying God, okay? And that's what's going on in Luke chapter 7. So first of all, it's objective. It does not happen inside of you. It's something that happens on the outside of you. And this is important because every one of you here are sinners and every one of you here struggle with sin. And so in your walk with Jesus Christ, you sin enough times, you begin thinking, I'm not worthy. How could God love a wretch like me? I couldn't be saved. If I do those things, how could I call myself saved? Brothers and sisters, justification has nothing to do with what you do. It's everything to what God has done with regards to the law that God placed upon mankind in Adam. Don't eat. Jesus did, he fulfilled God's law perfectly, and therefore he gives us um, his right standing in justification. All right? And that, that, that brings us then, secondly, to the basis. What's the basis of, therefore, your justification? Why are you justified? Why are you declared a righteous? If I asked you that without any context, most of you would probably say, what? Because? Anyone want a gander? Uh, take a, oh, is that right? Take a gander. Because I believe. Why are you justified? Because I believe. Brothers and sisters, that is never in the Bible represented as the basis of justification, ever. Justification is because Christ died on the cross. That's the basis. So it has nothing to do with you and me. So yes, you're a sinner, and yes, you're weak. Can that possibly violate this legal declaration that occurred in a court of law when you were saved, wherein God came and said, not guilty, even though you are? Well, how can he say that? Because Jesus Christ died in your place, and you get his life. Whoa. That's the doctrine of justification. So we read Romans 5, 9. You got the both verses up there. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Not by faith, but by his blood, by his death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. 3.24 um, says that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so in contrast to the condemnation that Adam brought upon all mankind, the work Christ provides,